Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Holy shit! It could happen here. It in in this case being being the podcast that you're listening to, and in fact, it is it is happening here in your ears. But you know what else is happening here? The world's kind of falling apart. Well, I don't know, not the world, but the structures in the world that we all relied upon for uh, 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 you know existence and shit. Sure are crumbling. Anyway, I'm Robert Evans. This is a podcast about how things are falling apart and how to deal with that shit. Um, if you're new to the show, maybe check out our first five episodes. They'll catch you up. They're evergreen. But this week, we have a special guest and a special conversation to have that I think is going to be edifying for a lot of people. Uh, I would like to introduce Mr. Joey Ayub. Joey, you are a writer and a researcher and the host of The Fire These Times, uh, which is a fantastic podcast. Um, Joey, how are you doing today? I'm fine. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm up. I'm operating within Norman parameters, as I said before. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm impressed by that because uh, I'm. I'm constantly in the process of falling apart, uh, which mm-hmm. is why I was late to this call. Joey, you want to give yeah. our listeners a, <laughs> a little background on yourself? Sure. Um, I'm originally from Lebanon. That's where I grew up. 
my family is kind of mixed, bit of Palestinians, bit of Italians, bit of Argentinians, kind of all over the place. Uh, and I am currently in Switzerland, uh, continuing my PhD, which one day will actually be done. I hope <laughs> I have been told that there is a life after the PhD. Um, yeah. So that's what I do. And I do podcasts and I write and I stuff that I probably forgot. And uh, you you wrote a, a column that I, I quite uh, admire for a website called Lausanne, which was based on a term that I think it was the, the Mengal media folks came up with, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and that term is the periphery. And and one of the reasons I think this is useful, so when I grew up, and I, I suspect it was the same, I don't know if it was the same for Garrison because he grew up in a weird cult, but it was probably the same for Christopher. Um, the terms we heard a lot for different, like it was either basically the United States or Europe or it was the third world, right? Those were the terms that I grew mm-hmm. up with. And I wasn't, it, I was like probably 17 or 18 before I actually learned that the terms first and third world kind of came from the Cold War, where like the U.S. is the first world, the Soviet bloc is kind of the second world, and then everyone else Mm -hmm. is the third world. Obviously, that's not a great collective noun for referring to uh, any group of anything. Uh, We try not to use third world, and a new term has kind of become more, uh, I don't know, vogue may be the wrong word, but people have started using the global south to refer to um, everywhere that's not the U.S. and Europe and, you know, um, a handful of other countries and kind of, uh, that's not great either. Um, because for one thing, a lot of those countries aren't South (laughs) and Australia isn't North either. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I'm interested in this because there is a use in having kind of collective nouns to refer to groups of people from multiple nations. Um, and, Mm -hmm. and the West isn't going to do for most places. Um, and I like this term, the periphery, because kind of the way that you and the Mangal folks kind of have described it makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. And it makes a tremendous amount of sense because it's not trying to group people together based on their relationship to uh, a, 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 a Western-centered kind of like international power dynamics understanding that even a lot of people on the left here kind of fall into where – you know, mm-hmm. um, you're either a, a imperialist or anti-imperialist, but being anti-imperialist means supporting a lot of imperialist powers because they're against whatever imperialist power you were born into. Anyway, I, I wonder if you if we could start by kind of getting your your explanation of what is the periphery, um, and 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 how do you sure, see yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I'll just say like upfront that I don't expect that term to work every time and in all mm-hmm. contexts. I, sure. I, for example, I, I know someone who who like works in development studies and who we had a pretty informative chat about uh, the terms global south and global north. And she was pretty convincing that they can be useful in, in, in a certain like in a materialist analysis of certain things. So I'm not I'm not kind of here to say like it doesn't work ever, basically. Um, but I think what really clicked with me or the, the number of things that really clicked with me in one is that conversation with F. Levant on Mangan Media on their, on their own podcast as well. I've written for them, and then we had a chat about, um, it was like about the explosion in Beirut last year. And at some point, the topic of the periphery, which they coined, I didn't coin it, um, yes. uh, came about. And the best way uh, he described it, uh, which is a bit ironic given the, the podcast I'm on now, is that when anti-authoritarian Turks, he's from Turkey, uh, see protests in, for example, Lebanon or Hong Kong, which was what ha- they were happening at the same time in 2019, and Iraq and uh, other places, Chile and so on. They they sort of think that it could happen here, like you know, it could happen in Turkey, essentially. 
which is not the case um, often with like French leftists or American leftists or yeah. usually leftists that are broadly speaking in the West. Now, there are obviously exceptions to all of these rules. Not every Turkish leftist thinks like that. Not every Western leftist thinks like that. But it's kind of a general trend. And for me, for example, the way I can explain it is that a podcast like It Could Happen Here, where you're sort of describing a situation that might happen here, here in America, let's say, wouldn't necessarily be needed in, for example, Lebanon, because it's already happening. Yeah. And it's been happening for some time now. Yeah. And it, it that that tension, in some sense, when I would, because now I live in Switzerland, so I'm in, I'm in, you know, in Geneva, which is as international as at the center, in some sense, as it gets almost. It this tension between my daily life, essentially here, and what's happening back home on a daily basis, is what has sort of led me to think about this other term, the periphery, because I just felt that, at least on an emotional level, global south wasn't working as well. If that makes sense. And one of the things I really find so useful and and admirable about this term is that it it is a it's a collective noun for referring to a group of people, but it separates those people from the mm-hmm. state, from their government. Yes. So when you're when you're talking about the periphery and you include people from Lebanon, um, people from uh, from Palestine, people from uh, Syria, you're not including the governments. You're not. It's not no. the states. It's the because pe- the people are peripheral to the power of those states and to the blocks that those states find themselves in, which is why they, you know, any any efforts at autonomy on the uh, the communal level are crushed so violently. Um, yeah, uh, that's why, like, for me, Global South, it in- the term includes the states from the so-called Global South that are crushing the activists from the so-called Global South. And so I just felt that I just needed this other layer, this other term that explains that dynamic as well. Yeah. Um, and... You know, one of the things you, you, you just were talking about was kind of the way in which a lot of leftists in, in the United States and chunks of the West will kind of disregard liberatory struggles overseas that don't neatly fit into a very simple ideological category. I'm, I'm kind of wondering, as you know, a kid who grew up in Lebanon and kind of, I'm, I'm going to assume, mostly focused on the regional kind of politics, when did you start to realize that that was something that was going on internationally? Like, when did you when did you realize kind of like, you know, we, we, I think a lot of folks were taken surprised by the reaction of a lot of the international left to like the Arab Spring. And I'm kind of wondering, was that mm-hmm. when it, it kind of hit home for you or did you start to see stirrings of those problems at an earlier date? Yeah, 2011 is when it kind of became very concrete in some sense. But I, I grew up having to visit Switzerland, actually, because my dad is a Swiss national. And I would do so on the Lebanese passport, obviously. So I would always need to apply for visas beforehand and so on, you know, like two or three times a year sometimes. And that sort of, it, it in, in retrospect, it was those early uh, experiences, just meeting the border, just experiencing a border all the time. That's sort of, at, I think anyway, it's one of those things that I've been thinking like in retrospect like planted the seeds of what was to come, if that makes sense, because I was always peripheral whenever I would go to Switzerland. I was never allowed to stay there longer longer than, let's say, three weeks if they gave me three weeks or three months if they gave me three months. And it sort of felt weird coming to Europe all the time because I, I'm actually born in France, but I don't have the citizenship. And so it, there was this sense that I, I felt it weird having to ask permission from someone to go to the place where I literally started my existence. Yeah, and so from on a on a very basic basic level, that's never quite always like squared with me, and that like led to a number of things that 
from Lebanon, I was seeing the rest of the world in that sense. And it took me some time. I think, yeah, I think after the Arab Spring, especially when I started seeing that Lebanon is peripheral, although I didn't, I didn't really have a term for that before. And the quote unquote real things were happening in, in the West. Now, obviously, that's all problematic. And I don't mean that literally because real things are happening everywhere all the time. But in the sense of what gets to matter, whose lives get to matter more and so on and so forth. Now, one of the things I, I think about a lot when I read your work um, and when I consume what, what Mangal Media puts out, Mangal Media is, um, I guess you'd call it a journalistic collective, um, yeah, yeah. made up of of people a lot. I think a lot of them were or are have worked as like fixers in uh, in in you know the periphery and parts of the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, what I find so vital about their voices is that it was, as, as an American journalist who's worked over there, it was always those folks who had the best stories. It's just that those stories got published with the New York Times or with the New Yorker or the Washington Post under somebody yeah. else's byline, right? Um, that's the way journalism actually works. In these. You, have, you do have some, some reporters like, um, oh, I'm spacing on his name, but the fellow who wrote No Good Men Among the Living, who uh, uh, has uh, Anand, done... Anand Gopal. Yes, yes, who has done, I mean, I think just, I'm, I'm sure has local sources in Afghanistan, but also mm -hmm. speaks the language and is just an accept... But for the most part, especially when you see somebody with my complexion reporting from over there, if they're getting good shit, it's because of it's because of a local. Um, and and what I like about Mangal is that it it breaks down kind of that barrier between that mm -hmm. kind of that kind of white person filter between the actual people living on the ground and understanding the situation and the person who's trying to package it. Um, which is not to say that I think there's no value in having a local package. And I think anytime you're trying to translate a story across, there is some reason for that. But I also think it leads mm -hmm. to, I mean, I know it leads to problematic kind of American, there's a lot of problems that it leads to. We don't have enough time to discuss all of yeah, them. Yeah. But what I'd like to talk about with you is is kind of how as consumers of, of media in the United States and in, in, in the West... Um, which most people listening to this are. Um, everyone on this call but you was born in the U.S. or a place that is a, the same as the U.S. but with a better hat. Um, I'm talking about Canada. Um, <laughs> so how do how do how do you recommend we if we if we're if we aspire to be internationalists and to to avoid falling into that trap of of flattening the struggles of other people to fit inside of a simple ideological rubric? How do you recommend people try and um, cut out to, or, or minimize to the extent possible um, the bias of, of whatever region they, they live in when reading news mm -hmm. from another part of the world? Like, how do you do that? Well, imp imperfectly, right? Like, it's mm -hmm. never going to be, it's sure. never going to be, you know, there's always going to be flaws. There's always going to be some a learning curve to all of that as well. One thing that's worked for me um because, you know, I, I did grow up in Lebanon, and so there is that dimension, but I was, I had a pretty sheltered child, childhood, you know, media was mostly on the internet, and so I could kind of go wherever I want, and I was pretty, up until a certain point, I was pretty, um, let's say, sheltered from what was happening even around, in Lebanon, around Lebanon, up until, let's say, the before just before the Arab Spring. So I, I do know what it's like to kind of have biases against, you know, other places and have certain... Yeah, just it's just human flaws at the end of the day. The main difference, I think, is just what gets centered and what gets peripheral. I mean, just to use that same term again. One thing that I've been doing to kind of help myself, and so I'll just speak from personal experience, is go to some websites like Lausanne. I, I've been, I've been, I read Lausanne regularly. 
Mongol Media as well, and there are a number of other websites that are trying as much as they can to actually write for one another. Like they're actually trying to write with the assumption that most people who are going to read are not from the West. And that's not easy to do for language barriers, for example. If they're, if they're mostly writing in English because the diasporas of the world, if there is some sense in kind of connecting to one another, we're probably going to do it in English. I'm just realistically speaking. Yeah. And so maybe Spanish, but like, you know, probably English. And that's, that's, that's something that we have to sort of contend with. It's not easy because I, yeah. it could be that I can spend all of my time having conversations with, let's say, other people in the diasporas of other groups, let's say. And because I'm doing it entirely in English, then I'm actually not conversing with people back home. And so that creates another problem. And it's, there's no easy solution, basically. There's no, I don't really have a, a, um, a, how do you say this? Like a, yeah, like a solution that can fit, can, can fit any scenario. So I don't really have a good answer to that, actually. I just think that reading diverse sources is the best way to do things, but with a critical eye as well. Although I feel like that's kind of a boring answer. And for me, the thing that has been quite refreshing is seeing projects like Lausanne, which is why I've published like a, a, a an interview with like they, we did an interview conversation thing where we were exploring parallels and contrasts between Hong Kong and Lebanon, for example. And that for me was a piece where I was entirely thinking about the people I was talking to, like people from Hong Kong. And that's it. We had a diaspora experience in common, but I wasn't thinking and we were speaking in English, but I wasn't thinking about how is this going to be received in New York or Paris or London or whatever, right? And I feel like these more of these probably will help because it centers different voices rather than the ones that we're used to. But even though it's center, I'm sort of saying it with like an, an asterisk because my entire point is that I'm actually uncomfortable with certain situations where I risk being the center of a story when there are so many things happening to my periphery as well. And yeah. so it can, hap it can happen on different layers if, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the problem of being, as you are, kind of a child of, of two worlds, where you, you have mm -hmm. the benefit of, of it makes it easier to explain both places to the other. Um, but you also, uh, you, you have a wall, kind of, or at least a couple of them up up inside you. Um, which exactly. is, is, yeah. Um, yeah, and it is like, there's no, there's no kind of gaining perfect perspective on uh, any place, including the place where you live. But I do think it's important to talk about kind of at least decentering to the extent that's possible, like Western voices when we're trying to understand places that are not Western. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. 
Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. So I, I think one of the things I've, I've talked with you a fair amount, just via chats over the years, particularly during some of the, the nonsense last year, is um, internationalism, which is, is a real concern, mm-hmm. I think, of everybody on this show and something that used to be in a lot stronger state than it is in the left. Um, and I, what do you see as the primary barriers to, to functional internationalism uh, at the moment? Um, well, West centrism is, I yeah. think, a primary one. Uh, racism, Islamophobia are pretty common as well. Um, Islamophobia is a pretty massive one. Uh, to the point that you know, like even non-Muslims like me can be swiped, <laughs> can kind of just taken with it as well. And I, I just I just think that when I say West centrism, I don't even only mean people who are from what from the West and are thinking about uh, the West as the center of the world, but I also mean like leftists from other parts of the world that think that the only enemy is is the West or the only enemy is America, for example. And uh, you know. Christopher and I had chats about this as well on my own podcast, actually, about uh, the, <laughs> yeah. the Tiananmen, uh, the, the, the legacy of Tiananmen as well, right? Like, it's not just misunderstood or, um, yeah, misunderstood among, let's say, white Americans, but it could also be misunderstood among Chinese Americans, for example. There are these m- multiple, like these multiple layers in which something can be misunderstood on, on different layers as well, if that makes sense. And I, for me, the problem with West centrism is that it takes up so much oxygen in the room. It just takes up so we, people like me and others, and like I've I've met folks from like the Balkans and and the Middle East and Southeast Asia and like on, on almost any group I can think of, I've met them that have complained about pretty much the same thing that they ended up spending so much time on the internet debunking disinformation or debunking tankies or debunking campism or debunking what have you or just misinformation sometimes and this this ends up being pretty exhausting like this ends up being like shit is happening on the ground like things are actually happening on the ground and activists from let's say beirut or that didn't happen as much in beirut but you know from iraq or syria syria especially obviously but hong kong as well 
you know, they have to deal with concrete problems on the ground, but at the same time, they have to worry about how this is being perceived on the internet, because usually uh, it's assumed that how it's perceived on the internet, so especially in the Anglophone online mediascape, can have real life consequences on the ground. And this is something that is very difficult to tackle because it's not enough to just fight them by having more Laosans and more Mongol media. For one, we just don't have the resources to challenge a Fox News or a CNN or what have you. Um, and for two, it's just exhausting. Uh, the, the main, the main um, I think the main thing that has stopped most activists I can think of, or at least they've taken a break or what have, what have you, is just burnout more than anything. It's not even... Uh, well, in, in many cases, obviously, it's also direct threats from the state and so, stuff like that. But more often than not, it's just being exhausted from having to spend so much time dealing with what's happening on the ground, while at the same time, making sure that what's happening on the ground isn't being misinterpreted or, you know, having to deal with disinformation or what have you. And so basically, the responsibility ends up being on people consuming these kinds of media. And I don't want to make it too individualistic either. There are structural problems to these things. As I said, CNN, the resources, all of that. But given that I can't, like CNN is not going to listen to me, the the other, the other next best thing is trying to just speak to just people who are willing to listen, essentially. And um, you talked a bit about, I mean, the situation in Lebanon right now, if people aren't aware, um, there was a massive explosion um, a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, everything's kind of been in free fall sense. And, and what's happening what's happening in Beirut and across like the, there have been massive wildfires that have destroyed uh, a huge chunk of the, of the country's forests um, and a lot like just kind of society uh, seems to be breaking down in a lot of areas. There's mm -hmm. stores don't have food. People don't like the inflation has, has reached kind of a, a, a nightmarish level. What do you like? We're, we're talking about, you know, th th these are all kind of the same problems that we're talking about everywhere. It's just it, it's much more severe at the moment there, and it's it's in a much more advanced state for a variety of reasons. Do you mm -hmm. do you have any hope for mitigation? How could the situation improve? I guess like I, I I'm looking at at Lebanon and I'm thinking about like what, not even like what I could do because I don't think there's anything I can do, but like how how things could possibly get better and um. Uh, yeah. I'm wondering if you if that's any clearer to you. Um, maybe only slightly more, but um, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's really bad. I mean, crumbling. You know, welcome to the crumbles that actually fits the 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 what's yeah. ha what's been happening for some for at least a couple of years, if not a bit more than that, uh, pretty well. Um, there is a mass exodus happening on a. Um, slow depending on the seasons basically sometimes it's faster in summer and then whatever but basically most of my friends for example uh like 90 percent of them are now abroad um and there is definitely a sense of um collapse that's you know in here is the term that we would use it just feels like a state of collapse essentially and what's kind of interesting i think is that this was being predicted for some time now. It's been a couple of years. I would say, I mean, towards the end of 2019 with the revolution, not that long after, you already had a lot of people within Lebanon, like kind of, you might call it the initial phases of counter-revolution in some sense, although that's probably a bit simplistic, but basically saying that if we continue taking to the streets, the country is going to collapse. 
And that's obviously not the reason the country is going to collapse. The reason uh, that is collapsing, the reason is a combination of COVID, last year's port explosion, uh, corruption in the state, sectarianism, uh, warlords basically control, controlling most of the country and so on and so forth. As for what can happen next, I mean, it does seem that at least for the foreseeable future, it's going to continue more or less the way it's been continuing. It feels like basically a decline that's sometimes steeper and sometimes less steep. Um, the stories on a daily basis are like, you know, a friend took her like five hours to to fill up gas and it's not even she can't take, you know fill the entire tank and uh, electricity went off for like three days. And so people, you know, their fridge was useless, you know, stuff like that. Um and it is definitely it's it's pl- I don't have the percentage with me, and those are just data and data without stories are can be misleading as well. But something like seventy percent, I'm gonna say, of the population is below the poverty line now compared to before, stuff like Jesus. that. So it's, it's it's pretty dire, and it's 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 pretty. It happened at such a uh, speed that I, I'm I'm gonna say like, I haven't been back since January 2020 for various reasons, COVID and security threats and other stuff. Sure. And um, I I can't quite picture it in my mind. It's not that easy. But friends, obviously speaking to them and photos and videos that I see, it it's just fair to say that everything that I can think of or most things that I can think of from before 2019, basically most of my life is essentially gone. And there is. There is no way of getting over that uh, quickly, if that makes sense. And you'll probably never get over it anyway, but you might get yeah. to some point where you you kind of regain enough energy to actually maybe act on it, if that makes sense. But there is a period in which now people are basically still grieving. And they're still grieving from last year's explosion as well because there's still no investigation, the usual stuff. And so, it yeah, no, it's 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 grim. And it's going to be grim for some time, I think. Uh, I that That being said, I don't think that people back home, uh, you know, aren't doing anything. They are. You have a number of initiatives. You have a number of basically mutual aid societies, although no one really calls them that, but they just pop up on their own. And these things function to a certain extent. Often it's, uh, they, they don't last too long, usually due to resources or burnout or what have you. And so it's, it's, um, Lebanon is one of those things. I had this, um, I think it was after the, the, the explosion last year as well. I was on another podcast, uh, The Arts of Travel is called, I think it was on that one, where he basically said that he, he thinks that for him, the apocalypse looks like what happened in Lebanon. And I think I, I know what he meant, but the, the problem with that analysis is that often we think that the apocalypse just happens and then that's it. But there's most of the story is actually the day after, if that makes sense. Yeah, and in Le- in Lebanon, as it happens, the apocalypse looked apocalyptic. You know that one day, that explosion that took just a few seconds and it destroyed so much of the capital and beyond. But the real story is what's been happening since then, and there I think is where Lebanon does have lessons. Well, for Lebanon first and foremost, but also for the rest of the world. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. 
if you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. You know, I think we're all kind of in this position of watching the place, seeing the place, most of us at least, seeing the places where we live in stages, you know, and, and mostly at the moment in earlier stages of what, what Lebanon's going through, not as severe, but but also kind of inevit- inevitably approaching that, right? Um, like, I, I think most, you know, I, I, I have a, a couple of friends who are school teachers who are like just kind of going to work with the absolute certainty that a bunch of people are going to get infected yeah. in the very near future. I have people who work at hospitals that are no longer able to handle uh, basic medical procedures for a lot of people that are triaging care. You know, that, that just came out that mm-hmm. Idaho is going to have to start triaging like medical yeah. care based on who they think might be able to survive. Um, yeah, so it, we're Italy all, did that last year as well. Yeah, yeah, we're all yeah. living through stages of that, and the 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 overwhelming question is like, how do we pull out of the tailspin? Um, and this is, you know, not a question I expect us to have. I, I've put it forward, and I, I think sometimes online people are like, oh, you know, you it, it's naive to think that like you know a general strike or mutual aid could avert uh the tailspin and I, I i don't think those are complete solutions to to pulling out of the tailspin i know there are aspects yeah, exactly. of what the solution will be nobody knows what the solution is because we're still in a tailspin um mm-hmm. in your mind what do you what do you think might be part of that answer with the knowledge that and and please people on reddit nobody's nobody's saying this is the complete solution to the problem <laughs> but like i'm i'm hoping by gathering people together who think about stuff, we can arrive at aspects of it. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's 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 a combo. So, in my own personal experience, is basically what I what I can speak of to the most. 
it's a combo of reaching out to people in similar situations. So in my case, diasporas especially. But like more broadly, it for me, I, I think it has to be a combination of uh, pragmatism. So I do believe in lesser evilism, for example, when that's the only option. Sometimes I feel like I need to choose and that's the only option I have. And so I do that. At the same time, doing so without the, you know, so Biden versus Trump, to use that simple example. But at the same time, knowing that that's not going to change much, if anything, it just it might slow, slow the collapse down. And that's actually yeah. the metaphor that I prefer to think about, like slowing things down gives me time to do other things, if that makes sense. So it gives me time to do more things rather than always having to defend myself constantly. The other, like more broadly, I think is it's a combination of trying to build dual power, trying to build mutual aid as much as possible. This is not going to solve things, but I just don't think there is anything that's going to solve everything. I just, I, just, I don't see how that's going to be possible. And the lack of that is what I think many people, it's scary. I mean, it's scary, right? It just scares a number of people. It scares most people. I mean, it scares me as well. And I do understand then the instinct to sort of go towards, well, you know, we have the EU, we have the US, we have those grand structures and we're going to just try and reform them and change them and so on and so forth i understand that and i i don't judge people who who believe that and who genuinely think that they can change things you know i i wish them good luck basically i don't if they succeed good for everyone right it's just that i i think due to structural factors primarily due to um related to power and how power power corrupts in almost every single case i can think of and pretty much all of them I just don't think these are solutions either. And I view my role as as trying in, and be critical as much as I can, trying to be honest as much as I can, saying when I just don't know something, then I just don't know something, and having a healthier balance on how to deal with this. But that being said, I I I don't have the the answer. I don't have the I I've, you know I think it is like ninety episodes on my podcast now and. There are a number of uh, episodes in which this also this topic comes up and some people have some answers, some people don't have an answer and just becomes an open question. But I, I, I would hope that at least the fact that there, there are no clear answers doesn't discourage people from at least trying to find these answers. Because I, I do think most of the time the solution is going to be found while trying, while attempting to solve something else, if that makes sense. It's, it's the, the act in itself or the acts in themselves that are going to produce some of these solutions because most of these solutions don't exist yet. We have to literally create them from scratch often. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really, I think that's an important thing to accept that in a lot of cases, you know, we don't know how to fix the problem. Right? I think the people who, who claim that it's whatever, whatever book they read, uh, you know, uh, written a hundred years ago has the perfect solution. I, I tend to think that's pretty arrogant, but I, I do think that what's not arrogant is like getting your hands dirty and trying to fix problems and uh, hoping and, and understanding that kind of the solutions to broader problems will come um, in part through dealing with and trying to improve the situation on, on a day-to-day basis. You know, we just did an episode about um, self-managed abortion where – the, mm-hmm. the the source was definitely more on the liberal end of things than the left end of things. And, and somebody who um, politically I would probably have a lot of disagreements with, but she spent the last 25 years trying to train communities of people to provide, to take control of, of, of reproductive health and like enable other members of their communities to take direct control of that. And that is something I very much 
um, believe in. And I think that's like that's mm-hmm. that's part of the solution, right? Part of the solution to why the fucking coronavirus has gotten so goddamn out of hand is everything to do with our our broken healthcare system. And it's 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 not just the fact that healthcare is expensive; it's the fact that people are kind of alienated um, from an understanding of their bodies. They're not properly educated about the way things work, and they don't feel like they have that kind of the consistent lack of a feeling of like medical autonomy leads people eventually to embrace nonsense. And and so yeah. there you have in kind of this very focused solution to, to one really specific problem, a part of, I think a larger solution to the problems that, that, um that confront us. Yeah. 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 No, that makes sense. And, you know, I mean, speaking of COVID, I think that, uh, I mean, we know that part of the reasons why it's lasting so long as well, other than local dynamics within a nation is that richer nations are basically holding the vaccines at this point. Uh, we're yeah. already talking about like the third booster shot in, in Switzerland, for example, and most of the world still doesn't have the first one. Uh, you know, those are political decisions. Those are political decisions being made uh, on behalf of the rest of the world as we see with climate change as well. It's the same story. Yeah. I don't know what to do about that at this stage. Like it seems mm-hmm. like kind of at every level we've given up on handling this the right way. You know, the 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 clear best solution would have been to treat the rollout of the vaccine, you know, the same way we treated World War II as like a, a logistical hurdle on on yeah. on par with getting a couple of million of men to Western Europe. And we do that to get the vaccine to everybody so we could have hopefully fucking stopped the variants from hitting. But we didn't do that. And um mm-hmm. we're not going to do that. And so I guess we're all left with mitigation once again, which is yeah. too often the story with, with climate change, too. And I don't know. We've, we've already kind of trod on that territory. Uh, Garrison, Christopher, is there anything you wanted to get into before we close out? Yeah, well, I think, I think one thing specifically with COVID that I think is really interesting is if you look at the places where COVID, like, you know, was bad, but, like, didn't, you know, kill 600,000 people, um, mm-hmm. you know, particularly looking at China and Hong Kong with this, so, you know, China, both both the, the government of China and the government of Hong Kong's initial state response is really bad. And what happened was, you know, in, in China, it's sort of, you know, you have a bunch of people who don't trust the government. And so what they do is you, you get hundreds of thousands of people sort of just mobilizing and forming these sort of volunteer things to, to you know, to enforce lockdowns, to enforce restrictions, to give people food. And, you know, it's part of some of it's state back, some of it's not, and some of it's you know, you get this sort of hazy line between the sort of mass mobilization and between uh, just people doing stuff on sort of state-aligned directors. And then in Hong Kong, you know, and people like people like torch border crossings, people like, you know, there, there's this huge thing to get everyone masked. There's this huge, like, and then this stuff is like entirely against, against sort of against it, like against the sort of government. But what, what I think is interesting about both of them is that it's like, you know... It, it, it it turned out to be possible to make the pan, to make the pandemic less bad if you mobilized and and it wasn't really the state that did this it was you know people who didn't really trust the state and were like okay so we're just we're going to take this into our own hands and, and i think you know in some ways like that that seems like the, the thing that can be done is you have to get people moving first like before everything completely collapses I guess I guess something I was I also think was interesting about that was that the way that and I think this going going back to the internationalism part we were talking about is that th- there's this way in which that 
this, particularly in China, the story of, of this, this hundreds of thousands of people doing these mass mobilizations just never reached the West at all. Like, it, you know, everyone, everyone looked at China and went, oh, this is how the state is reacting. And it's like, yeah, the state did a lot of extremely weird things. Some of them were good. Some of them were bad. But the, the, the sort of mass popular mobilization beneath it gets erased. And, and I think, and I'm, I'm wondering what you think about this, Joey, looking at even, even how the left worked in the 90s, or looking, looking at the Zapatistas and looking at the, the, the People's Global Assembly stuff that they set up on how, about how that stuff was about social movements. And it, it wasn't about sort of, it wasn't about states. It wasn't about necessarily political parties. It was, you know, you'd bring a bunch of social movements together. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what you think about the extent to which part of what went really wrong in the left in the last 10 years is that they kind of, they abandoned that and it became sort of, everything became, like internationalism became almost completely state and party based. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, the Arab Spring is is where, I mean, this is, I mean, it might sound a bit of an exaggeration, but it's where the left sort of buried itself. Like for me, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's like, I still broadly call myself on the left just because it's simpler, but I, I have a lot of problems with a lot of people who are on the left when it comes to so many different things. Um, I don't, I don't quite know where it started. Um, uh, some people trace it back to like the, you know, I don't know, like the Hungarian revolution in 56, you know, stuff like that. So I, I don't, I don't quite know where you start or where you ended, but it does seem that at some point the, I don't know, it's a combination of the, the hauntings from the Balkan wars and the, and the genocides there and, and the denialism that was allowed to essentially be just grow and be normalized to the point that some guy like at last year or two years ago, he got the Nobel prize for literature, even though he's a Bosnian genocide denier. And just these, these things are becoming, have become in the past um, decade or two, I suppose, more normalized. And now we're sort of back to the mitigation section of things. For me, uh, the Arab Spring, you know, to use the metaphor of the canary in the coal mine, was sort of that, but I'm sure you can go further back and some people will say it actually started with Bosnia or Rwanda or something, but I'm, I, I wouldn't say that I'm, um, I can say like for certain where it started, if that makes sense. But yeah, for me, it's obviously it's the Arab Spring. That's That's been the center of my world for a long time now. And it's it's where I felt that the, the lack of support that was needed, and it's ongoing. I'm, I'm talking about it in the past tense, but it's ongoing. Yeah. Like Dara is being bombed right now. Yeah, they just um, bombed Idlib too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's ongoing. Uh, the humiliation is ongoing. The, the Assad regime is putting out the green buses, which every Syrian knows what they're about. The humiliation ones where you, you escort people out of their homes, basically. And they, they, they know, like the, the regimes, I think at this point, know what they can do and what they can't do. They're, they're pretty confident in what they can and can't do. So, yeah, sorry, I'm ending another pretty positive note on that, unfortunately. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I guess as a last question, I'm kind of curious. Yeah. We, we've we've analyzed the problem of the left kind of aligning themselves with, with parties and with nations mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and how that leads to a, a tremendous amount of blind spots, a flattening of, of conflicts and a flattening of the humanity of people who don't live close to you, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, all part of the problems that we that we are in right now what do you think we ought to be aligning ourselves around like if you're getting you know if we're 
if we can if we can come to see ourselves as all in the periphery and and in the periphery at least in sort of as relates to these states because in a way we all are right um mm-hmm. people in the united states certainly like benefit more from imperialism and from the might of the united states but we're also peripheral to the power of that state uh which i think a lot of people may have experienced for the first time when they got tear gas last year or or as yeah. kind of the yeah. The di- different state effects or attempts to deal with the coronavirus have failed disastrously. This re-, re but what do you what should we be aligning ourselves around? Like what do you what do you? But <laughs> you, you sort of gave. I mean, I, even the example that you gave is for me. It's a pretty good one because that's also sort of the point that like centers and peripheries are everywhere, and they're they are also within nation states. So like. Lebanon is peripheral to America, but many Americans are peripheral to other Americans, if that makes sense, and to other Americans in power, especially. Like for me, one of the primary thinkers behind my own thinking is James Baldwin, you know, African-American. So like he is technically a Westerner, but I would consider a lot of his writing to be peripheral, essentially. And that's because he has this amazing uh, quote that I'm going to probably butcher, but it's something along the lines of like the oppressed don't only know the oppressor's better than the oppressors know the oppressed, but they also know them better than they know themselves. That they Like the oppressed know the oppressors better than the oppressors know the oppressors, essentially. Which yeah. is, I think, Fanon said something similar as well. And for me, this this is a sort of insight. This is kind of the thing that blew, out, that blew my mind. And this is this thing that I, I would say in the past few years have really shaped everything. As to what to sort of like ally ourselves with, I mean... The, the problem is that it's it sounds very cheesy to say to have actual principles and, and maintain them. But the problem is that we don't do it often. We don't actually maintain these principles often enough. I, I don't know if I'm, I'm not going to speak for everyone, obviously, but in my sure. experience, it's, it's, it is difficult to maintain them. And often what I see is very seasoned activists basically dealing with burnout and kind of retiring from public life and from activism and just kind of doing their own thing and whatnot. And for me, the question is, how do I continue doing what I'm doing, but in the long term? And there is a time component to this. There is a resource component to this. And the more we are able to add these different um, frameworks to understand things, like for me, the periphery is just one framework. You know, feminism is another one. Anarchism is another one. Uh, None of these things explain everything all the time, right? But it's, it's just different lenses from which I can understand the world. And my advice which is not an easy one, I still struggle with it, is to just try and have as many different lenses as possible. And that's sort of my advice. It's not a, you know, it's not a, um, it's not a very quotable one. You're not going to find this on a t-shirt, I think. <sighs> well, um, Joey, I, uh, that's, that's, I think, all I had to, to ask and get into today. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about uh, before, we, before we roll out and leave our audience to, I don't know, Go uh, grow some cabbage <laughs> or whatever. Uh, well, growing cabbage in community is always the best thing to do, to be honest. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Make food. Make food, make food. Do community gardens. That's the best thing anyone can do, to be honest. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. No, I, I I can talk about solar punk. I can talk about a bunch of stuff. But um, yeah, I guess my advice to everyone would be uh, grow a bunch of veggies for everyone <laughs> all the time. We'll um we'll have a more we've been meaning to I had been meaning to include a lot more solar punk stuff in the first five episodes of this we got a bit at the end but it's um yeah um I wanna I wanna do a more detailed uh and, and meaningful exploration so we'll have you back for that but uh, Joey sure. I thank you so much for coming on 
um, your podcast, The Fire This Time. Um, the Fire and, These uh, Times, yeah. Fire These Times, sorry. And uh, also no check worries. out Mengal Media uh, and Lausan. You've written mm-hmm. for both places um, and also both great sources for people to check out if you want to de-westify your, uh, your, your <laughs> reading about other parts of the world. Um, all right, that's going to do it for us here at It Could Happen Here. Um, until it does, uh, yeah, like Joey said, start a fucking garden. <laughs>